Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, with God's help, we'll be looking this afternoon at verses 10 through 20. Also printed for you in your order of service, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. You ever heard that? I know some of you have. Yeah. Well, there does certainly seem to be something uneasy for many people about the idea of war, right? For most people, even many Christians, war and the idea of war and war language is very off-putting. For some people, very offensive, negative. And it's true, all worldly warfare is more or less evil when you think about it. Yes, we know that in certain cases, warfare is, we would say, a necessary evil to bring down some oppressor who is terrorizing innocent people and uh, the strong overpowering the weak. We know that that sometimes needs to be stopped, but it's still evil, right? As any soldier will likely tell you, any cost of war with loss of life is too much. That there's a terrible amount of devastation, bloodshed, loss of innocent life, let alone loss of life with military combatants. And then all the other things associated with war, right? Economic turmoil, disease, starvation, all these other things. War breaks apart families. Uh, Mothers lose their sons. Wives lose their husbands. Children lose their fathers and much worse. And yet... There is one type of warfare that is especially good. One fight in which, in a sense, there is no evil, except the evil we fight, and that warfare is Christian warfare. That fight is the fight of the soul. True Christianity is a good fight. This is the theme that we're going to be taking up this afternoon as we get close to finishing Paul's letter to the Ephesians. True Christianity is a good fight. I want you to think about that as we're about to read now from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Paul shows us the necessity, the goodness, fighting the Christian fight. So please follow along with me as I read now. We get close to finishing this letter. Paul writes this to the Ephesians Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish 
all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And praise God for his holy word. Friends, there's a lot that we could say about this passage. If I boil down one main idea I think Paul wants us to take away here, it's this. To withstand the devil's attacks, to withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. To withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. That's what we'll be unpacking this afternoon in this passage. My prayer for you, Christians, as you go through this, is to be encouraged in the Christian fight. And this is not just a sort of inventory, as it were, a list of weapons and armor, and that's it. Paul's message, wants, he wants to encourage Christians to not be afraid in this fight of spiritual warfare. So he's telling us to withstand the devil's attacks. You must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. You can see in the handout, my sermon outline here, I have four, or excuse me, five main things that I want us to see in this passage. And the first is very simply this, is that you need to realize you are in a battle with a real enemy. If you're a Christian, you have to have that mindset. You can see it right away in the first couple of verses here in this passage, verses 10 and 11. Paul makes that very clear. He starts off with a call to war, as I see it. Verses 10 and 11, Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul is telling Christians here, gear up, get ready for battle. And if you glance through the rest of the passage, you'll see he's continuing to do that. Notice at least four four times, maybe five, he calls on Christians to stand. And then at the end of the passage, he says, be alert, keep watch. That's all military-type language, right? Of readiness, being diligent. It's a posture of readiness like any good soldier. Keep alert. And yet, and yet, as the great poet Verbal Kint once put it, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Right? There's many people in this world who don't believe in a real devil. They don't believe in Satan. They think it's just sort of a metaphor, maybe for evil. The Bible doesn't see Satan as a metaphor. It sees Satan and the devil as a real person. That's what Paul is pointing out to us here. So don't miss this. Not only do non-Christians get this wrong, but even some Christians believe that there is not a real personal enemy in the Christian life, and there is. There is. The Christian life is not easy. The Christian life, the true Christian life, is a fight. There's a lot of religion in this world that is not true Christianity. 
There are a lot of people in this world who go to church on a Sunday. There are a lot of people in this world who have been baptized in the church. There are a lot of people in this world who have Christian weddings. A lot of people who die and have Christian memorials. But for many of those people, you never see a hint of fight in their lives. When it comes to watching, when it comes to guarding, when it comes to being alert, when it comes to being ready, when it comes to standing, they know nothing at all. While a toothless, while a fightless, while a sleepy religion might satisfy many, many people in this world, it's not true Christianity. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the Christianity, the faith that Jesus himself lived and modeled. It's not what the apostles taught. The Christian life is not a life of ease. It's a life of warfare. There are no spiritual civilians when it comes to the Christian life. And so, friends, you need to remember that. Because one of the most loving things, the most loving things you can do in your evangelism, sharing with your friends and with your family, who Jesus is, how to become a Christian, one of the most loving things you can do is to share that up front whenever you evangelize. You share up front. Christian life is not easy. Christian life is not going to solve all your problems. It's not going to make you healthier, wealthier, more prosperous. It's not. If anything, it's going to make your life harder. That's what Paul is showing us here. Christian life is not easy. It's not free from pain and suffering. And so it actually hurts our evangelism when we hide that from people. We don't tell them. Because what can happen later on is these people will say, oh, I'm a Christian. Why did my life get so hard? I didn't sign up for this. And they walk away. Say, I'm done with this Christian stuff. This is too hard. Friends, it's good for our evangelism, for our sharing with friends and family to say, look, I'm a Christian. My life is not easy. If you follow Jesus, he promises it's not going to be easy for you too. But it is a good fight. Christian, your enemy is real. We need to see that. And this enemy is coming for you. And so you need to know who this enemy is. You need to be ready. Understand what are his tactics? What are his weapons? What are his stratagems, his aim? That's the second thing I want us to see here. You need to know your enemy and his tactics, verses 11 and 12. The minute you're united to Jesus Christ, believer, you're at war with the enemy. And this enemy is unlike any other. Notice what Paul says here. Notice how Paul profiles the enemy. Verse 11, he identifies the enemy as the devil. And then he goes on to say this about the enemy in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So just trace out here with me as Paul profiles our enemy. What kind of enemy is this? Well, this enemy is scary close. What do I mean by that? You notice the word that Paul says? He says, we wrestle against this enemy. You ever thought about wrestling? Wrestling is a close contact sport, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're holding the other person. You are, you are in their armpit. Uh, you're swapping sweat, right? Uh, that's a very close contact sport. You know your enemy or combatant, as it were, intimately. 
That's what Paul's the, giving us a picture of here. We're wrestling against this type of enemy. It's close, very close. So you need to know him. But also notice this enemy is powerful and pervasive. Powerful and pervasive. Paul uses four or five different expressions here to describe the enemy, to show that. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, this enemy is everywhere. You can't escape the enemy. He's going to be on you. You can't hide. He's close and powerful. Don't underestimate this enemy. But then also, third, notice that this enemy is spiritual. This enemy is spiritual. This is important. Because remember the context that Paul is speaking in here to the Ephesian church. Who might they think their enemy is? They live in this vast Roman Empire that's very powerful, that is very pervasive, it's everywhere. They live under the boot of the imperial army, which is mighty and strong. They could be tempted to think, my enemy is the Roman Empire that is making life really hard for me. And yet Paul doesn't point the finger at the Roman Empire and say, there's your enemy. He uses this language of powers and authorities, and then he says, your enemy is spiritual. It's in the heavenly places. I think Paul does that because he wants the Ephesians to sort of see through what they want to see through this earthly reality into the spiritual realms, as it were, to take stock of who it is they're really grappling with. I want you to notice that because as Christians, you have a spiritual vision that other people don't have. You see things differently. And one of the ways that you do that is you see the true source of evil in this world. That evil is not just some sort of vague, impersonal force out there like the dark side in Star Wars. It's just sort of there and you feel it from time to time. No, it's, it's a real enemy and it's behind a lot of the brokenness in that we see in this world. That's what Paul wants us to see through this vision. And the devil's not just some sort of cartoon character with a pitchfork and, and you know horns on his head. No, this is a real enemy who's out to get you. And Christians, you need to know that. Just like the Ephesians, our enemy today then is not simply a government. It's not the Chinese government. It's not simply the American government. Our enemy is even not things like personal shame, as, as difficult as that is. Our enemy is not even poverty or political views, or our enemy is certainly isn't other Christians. I think Paul wants us to see here. While there could be evil forces behind any one of those things, we have to see through what is the source. Our enemy is the devil, is Satan. And this enemy is like no other enemy. This enemy is never seen. This enemy never dies. This enemy is near us wherever we live, wherever we go. And so a Christian engaged in battle, you must maintain this divine eyesight throughout your life. Be aware This is a cosmic spiritual battle. Know that profile, and then also know this enemy's goals, his tactics, his weapons. We need to know that. We need to know his aim, his goal, is to oppose God and to tempt us to sin against God. That's the main mission of the devil, I believe. But you need to know something of his tactics. Notice what Paul says here. He says that in verse 11. We need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil's schemes. And in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, Christians, 
He says Christians are not ignorant of the devil's devices. See, Paul assumes that you know something, that you're prepared uh, to know the devil's tactics in some way. So just consider that. I'm sure you've experienced some of these tactics or the weapons of the devil in your own life. Have you ever had doubts in the Christian life? You ever wonder, am I, am I really a Christian? You know, I, I thought I repented and, and believed in, and I believe in Christ, but is that true? Are you ever tempted to think that you don't belong to Jesus, that you're still under the devil's power? If I'm a Christian, then why is all this bad stuff happening in my life? It's one of the devil's tactics. to so doubt into your mind and into your soul that you're really a believer. But also worry and anxiety. Have you ever been tempted to think, I, I don't know if I'm going to have enough in life, if I'm going to be provided for. Remember what Jesus said? Do not be anxious about anything. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus also tells the parable of sowing of the seed. Now some seed is choked out by thorns. Well, one of the tactics of the enemy is to sow doubt and worry into your life to choke out the seed of God's word from taking root. It's a real threat. Or one more, accusations. The devil hears that you proclaim to be a Christian and then he immediately accuses you of being otherwise. Have you ever felt this in your own life? You say, I'm a Christian, I just committed a sin, maybe nobody knows about it, but man, I feel like a hypocrite. I call myself a Christian, but people really knew, or maybe they do know, and they think, how's that person a Christian? It's one of the devil's tactics, to sow accusations in your heart, because what that does is just erode at your faith, and it makes you pay more attention to your sin than look to Christ. These are tactics. There are a myriad other tactics and weapons. We could go on and on about what the devil's tactics are, but we need to know something of these things if we're to be aware of this enemy. Let me give you two quick, two quick helps for you before we move on to what Paul has to say about the armor of God. Two helps for you, though, as you study and be aware of the enemy and his tactics. Two things are going to help you. Number one, study your own heart. As you study your own heart, you're going to be more aware of the devil and his tactics. Why? Studying your own heart is kind of like a soldier patrolling on top of a city wall or throughout the city. The soldier is looking, trying to see where are the weak spots in the city. Are there any gates open? Are there any windows open? I need to shut those. Where can I call in help for guard, extra guards? As you meditate on your own life and your own sin, as you study God's word, you put your life up against the light of God's word, it's going to be like patrolling your own heart to expose your weaknesses. It's one thing you need to regularly do, but also, number two, you need to study the Bible. I know we hear that a lot. Read the Bible, but let me tell you why it's so crucial in this fight. We actually have the devil's game plan in God's word. You ever think about that? How can I know what the devil's up to? Well, God's word has given us a history lesson in how the devil tempts people into sin. One thing you can do as you study the Bible is you can learn from the mistakes and the successes of past saints as they fought against the devil, as they fought this Christian fight. You can look back on people like King David, 
how he stumbled into sin and just spiraled down, how the devil attacked him. You can think of people like Job, resisting to fall into sin. You can think of people like the Apostle Peter, even Jesus himself as he fends off temptation from the devil. You have here in your hands a game plan of the enemy. There's not a sin in which you are tempted that the word of God does not arm you against. So pick up and read. Study your Bible to be aware of those tactics. But then here in point number three, Paul gives us, he gives us the weapons, right? And the armor for the Christian life. So verses 13 through 18. The crucial element in this battle is to know you have spiritual weapons and armor at hand. Um, As I was studying this this week, there there are two pastors I really admire, I've learned a lot from. A guy named William Gurnell. He was a Puritan in the 17th century. He wrote three volumes just on these verses, over a thousand pages. Um, Really good. I recommend it. Um, Another guy, another pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote, let me see, he wrote 68 sermons just on these verses. And he wrote 232 sermons over all of Ephesians. He preached it over eight years. So I would love to slow down right here, kind of like these guys, and be like, let's just take this verse by verse. But, you know, we're going to have to save that for another time, another sermon series where we can really pick apart things. So if you have questions, what does this exactly mean? I get it. And I, I realize what's coming is going to be very cursory. It's going to be very simple. But I hope it's still going to be helpful for you, and I think it is. So let's see why. So Paul says in verse 13 to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Number one, Christian, that's your first piece of armor. Now before we go through each one of these, I want you to remember again how Ephesian Christians lived under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So as many of you know, what Paul's doing here is very interesting, right? What Paul's doing when he's going to lay out this armor and weapons, he's looking at a Roman soldier of his day and seeing how they're equipped. And he's using that to sort of point to the Ephesians and say, you've been equipped just as well as that Roman soldier. You know, the Roman soldier of his day was top-notch military power. You think of the U.S. government today, one of the top military forces in the world. Roman soldiers were like the Green Berets or the special forces of the Roman Empire. This is how the Roman Empire expanded so rapidly in many places. So what does Paul do? He says, you have much greater armor than that in the Christian life. And, I don't have a ton of time to get into this, but Paul is interestingly here, you may not know this, he's taking that Roman image and he's combining it with how the Old Testament speaks of God himself when God goes into battle. Many of these pieces of armor are used in the Old Testament to say of God. God has a helmet. God has a breastplate. So he's combining these two and saying, you have something even better, something even more powerful. Okay, six things that he goes through here. First is this belt of truth in verse 14. Just like the belt of a Roman soldier would tie up his loose tunic to keep him from stumbling, he would hold his sword 
and the scabbard. It's a picture of how God's word, which is truth, makes you ready for action. So the truth of God's word steadies your confidence as you are running through the Christian life. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. When have you ever heard this story of Martin Luther, the reformer? Martin Luther had a terrible dream one night. As he dreamed, Satan came up to him with three scrolls, three books, basically. And Satan unrolled the first scroll. And he said to Luther, and Luther saw to his horror that it was filled with all of his sins. And Luther looks at that first scroll and he says, well, do you have any more? And Satan unrolls the, th- the second scroll and he says, yes, I do. And then Luther says, do you have any more? And Satan says, yes, and he unrolls that. And Satan says, but isn't it that enough to damn you? You don't really think God would forgive you for all that, do you? Satan, Satan stared at his face. You know what Martin Luther did in this dream? He took a pen and he scrolled over each of those scrolls. And he wrote, the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin. My friends, that's kind of a picture of what it looks like to have the breastplate of righteousness covering you as a Christian. The righteousness is not yours, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is perfectly righteous, right? He lived a life that we could not. And when you are a Christian clothed by faith in Christ's righteousness, there's no dart of Satan, there's no weapon that can pierce that. You say to Satan, I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. I am washed in his blood. I am counted righteous because he is righteous. And so there's no accusation that can condemn you before God. Number three is also... Shoes for your feet, verse 15. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What you want to think of here is the Roman boot or the Roman shoe. It's got nails in it, kind of like cleats. It's going to grip the ground, keep them from slipping, help them grip as they make an attack. Paul combines that with Isaiah 52, verse 7. He's saying, here's what's going to steady you in this fight against Satan. What's going to steady you against sin? What's going to keep you from slipping into fear and guilt? It's the gospel. As a Christian, what's going to keep you slipping is knowing, believing you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. God is no longer, he has turned his wrath away from you. There's no fear that comes of that. You don't need to live in fear. You can stand firm knowing that you've been reconciled. That God is on your side now. God's not fighting against you. He's fighting for you. That's the peace that can nail you to the ground as a Christian. Number four, verse 16. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know what the Romans would do before they went into battle? They would take these shields, many of them massive, covering basically the entire body, and they would dip them in water. And dip them in water and hold them so that when the enemy shot arrows at them, the shield would basically extinguish those arrows because the shield is wet. So that's the picture that Paul has in mind here for the Christian. They take up a shield of faith, and whenever Satan shoots a temptation, 
It just sticks in that shield and is extinguished. Right? This is what Scripture itself says. And the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. So continually trusting in God's word, believing his promises, that's going to be like a huge shield covering your soul. Number five, as we move somewhat quickly through these, verse 17, the helmet of salvation, Paul says, guarding one of the most crucial parts of your body, right? If you're thinking of a soldier, the helmet is crucial. Maybe some of you know the, the name um, Oliver Cromwell, 17th century general. Uh, he fought uh, many battles in a, what was essentially an English civil war, and he won many of these battles very dramatically. It was said that his army could not be beat. And the reason it could not be beat, some people said, was because it was an army of Calvinists. Uh, because these soldiers held so firmly that whatever happened was predestined by God. They were meant to be in this place at this time in this battle. It was in God's will. They were so confident that they could not be beat. And there's a sense in which all that should be true of us as well as Christians. That we might experience setbacks in the Christian life, but they're temporary. They're not the ultimate defeat because we already know what the outcome is going to be. We already know salvation is secure. Our salvation. If you're in Christ, there's nothing that can pull you away from God's hand, right? The outcome is assured. Our salvation is secured, and that's why we have the helmet of salvation. So think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for example. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed by, day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The mindset that you have when you have the helmet of salvation. But then also number six here in verse 17, you take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What did Satan, what did Jesus say about Satan? Satan is a liar and the father of lies. There's no truth in him. What's your weapon against those lies? The word of God. The sword is the only offensive weapon that the Christian has. You see how Jesus wielded that sword himself, right? Jesus is in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and three times Satan tempts him, and three times, what does Jesus say? It is written. It is written. It is written. Right? Jesus counterattacks with the word of God, which is the sword. Hebrews 4 also tells us, very well-known passage of the Bible, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So friend, you put those six things together, belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword, 
You have a picture of a fully armored person, right? Covered from head to toe. And yet, if that's all you have in the Christian life, to go up against the devil, you're not quite equipped. As Paul says, there's one thing that you need to cover with all that stuff with. He says it in verse 18. It's prayer. Did you notice that? Prayer. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is the most powerful weapon you have in the Christian life. Because by prayer, what are you doing? You're actually calling down God himself to fight for you. I think of it like divine artillery being called in in your fight. And Jesus himself said that prayer is a weapon against temptation. He said, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Apostle Paul, you think of his own life, for example, he said spiritual attacks spurred him to go to God in prayer. Remember Paul said he had a messenger from Satan that was tormenting him, a thorn in his side. What did Paul do? He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. His temptations drove Paul to prayer. So just like when a soldier is shot in a war, shot in a fight, he runs to the rear of the battle lines to get treated. So to you, when you're shot at in the Christian life with temptations, your job is to run to Christ, to go to the throne of grace and ask him, plead with him for his grace, his Holy Spirit to fill you. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, since you are tempted continually, you must pray continually. Essential weapon in the Christian fight. So friends, again, to withstand, withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. Now, like I said, I'd love to explain more in depth about each piece of armor, but I don't want you to miss the bigger message here that Paul's saying about all this, this armor. I think there's two big takeaways he wants you to see here. And the first, with all this armor that's thrown at you in the Christian life that you have, you need to remember the main bigger point here is, Christian, don't be afraid. You have a real enemy, yes. Once you're united to Christ, that enemy's coming after you, yes. That may sound scary. But look, you've been given all this armor the moment you united to Christ. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid. God has begun to equip you. And if you're his saint, you're his warrior, he will not allow you to go down in this battle. He won't. So while you must never underestimate the seriousness of the Christian life, you must also never bow in fear to this enemy. Trust that the Lord will not let you go down in defeat. Remember that. But also, number two, if you've been given this armor, you need to train your hands for war. Right? No, no soldier is just thrown armor or weapons and expected to know how to use them, right? We need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 144. Say, blessed be the Lord my God who trains my hands for war. So you need to practice, right? You need to go to God's word. Train with that sword. Uh, you need to be with other Christians to be disciplined and trained. As a Christian soldier, you need to Eat right with the word of God. Fuel yourself on prayer. 
feed on the body of Christ through the Lord's Supper, which I hope, Lord willing, in the next couple of months, we'll be able to take the Lord's Supper together. And that's another way to feed your faith for the Christian life. So friends, take this battle seriously, but don't fear the enemy. Train your hands for war. Be encouraged that God has given you the weapons you need to fight this battle. But then notice there's another encouragement here that we have as Christians. And that is we can call in reinforcements. That's the fourth thing I want us to see here. Verses 19 and 20. You are in battle with other Christians. So by that I obviously don't mean you're battling other Christians. You're fighting alongside other Christians. You need to remember that. Because even the Apostle Paul asked others to pray for him. You notice that in verses 19 and 20? Paul says, pray also for me that my words, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Where's Paul when he's writing this? He's in a Roman prison, right? He's facing probable execution. You think Paul was just a little bit scared about that? I think he was. I think he was. How's he going to be bold in the face of that? And not only be bold, but also bold to share the gospel through prayer. Other Christians praying for him. Paul's not afraid to ask for prayer. He regularly does it. Colossians 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 25. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. He's asking other Christians to pray for him. This is the, the great apostle Paul, right? I mean, he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. Even he needs the prayers of other Christians. He has to battle alongside other Christians. So friends, I hope you can see how important prayer is for the life of the church. What's going to encourage Christians today in Shanghai? who face an authoritarian Chinese regime? What's going to empower groups of small house churches to continue meeting and worshiping in the shadow of the police? What's going to encourage you if the police ever came here and took you away to be detained, maybe even in prison? What's going to embolden you to not only withstand, but even perhaps share the gospel in those moments? It's not the size of our church. It's not how much earthly power we possess. It's not even your intelligence or your own strength. What's going to embolden you is the same thing that emboldened these Ephesian Christians and emboldened Paul. Courage of the Christian church lies more in the strength of our prayers than the, and then the amount of any earthly power we possess. strength of our prayers is going to encourage you, embolden you in the Christian life. And friends, that's why it's important not only to be here every single Sunday as Christians, praying together, worshiping together, but even in our monthly prayer meetings. As we do that, as we gather at least once a month to pray as a body together, you know what we're doing? We're encouraging each other. We're helping each other train as soldiers in the Christian life. Those prayer meetings, I think of them as a great way to train together as sort of special forces training. Our church is small, but I do think of us as a highly trained special forces platoon 
And each prayer meeting we are going to is like target practice, right? We're helping each other aim correctly our hearts towards God's will and fire at the right target. We're getting better at working together as a team. We learn our weaknesses and our strengths and how we can encourage each other. In each prayer meeting, we are spying out together the enemy's tactics and his forces. So don't avoid those training meetings, those prayer meetings, and the work that God can do for us and in us. But I also want you to see, before we move on to our final point here, I want you to also see that even church leaders, even pastors need your prayers. Again, the great Apostle Paul, pastor, theologian, churchman, writer, even he needed prayers from churches. How much more do church leaders today need your prayers? Friends, please pray for me as your pastor. I struggle just as much as any of you do every single day with my own sin, against against sin and temptation. Don't ever think that your pastor is immune from that. Ask me out for coffee or lunch sometime, and I let's talk about it. As Christians, that should not be strange to talk to each other about our sin struggles. I mean, the devil would love for us not to do that. That's one of the tactics. We are helped as Christians when we share those things and when we pray for each other because we're in this battle together. Now, friends, if the Apostle Paul himself needed prayer support in the Christian life, certainly you do and certainly I do. So let's regularly be praying for each other. But that brings us to the last thing that we need to know about this fight in this passage. And that is that you have a king who fights for you. Verse 10, going back to the very start. Friends, as I said, God does not just toss you a suit of spiritual armor and say, have at it, I'll see you later. Um, No, God leads you into battle. Jesus is your commander-in-chief in this fight. And God is saying to you, don't rely on your own strength and might, rely on mine. That's what Paul says there in verse 10. See that again. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I wonder if the thought, I hope you think about it, I wonder if the thought of Christian battle wearies you. Does the enemy ever frighten you? Do you ever say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can fight this sin today. Maybe you ever had those times where you just cry out, God, I, I, there's no way that I can battle the devil today. You know what God is saying to you in this passage? He's saying exactly. You can't. But I can. Trust in my strength and in my might. Because after all, this battle is not in fact yours. It's mine, the Lord says. This is my battle to fight. Friends, spiritual warfare with that mindset is not an unfortunate byproduct of the Christian life. Spiritual warfare is not sort of Jesus' unfinished salvation business that he'll get to later. The purpose of spiritual warfare isn't to win your salvation because your salvation is already secured for you. 
Spiritual warfare is God's plan, his purpose. Spiritual warfare is redemptive. Because battles will free you from your pride. They will free you from your self-sufficiency. Battles are meant to drive you away from yourself and to drive you to Jesus Christ. That's God's key message running throughout the whole Bible, right? You think of the whole tenor of redemptive history. What is God saying? He's saying, I will fight for my people. I can use the smallest, I can use the weakest of people to win great victories. In fact, I delight to do so because when I do, it wins more glory for myself. I can bring down huge walled cities like Jericho just with people marching around shouting and using trumpets. I can defeat a huge army of Midianites with just 300 people and the weakest man of the weakest clan. I can even use a little shepherd boy, smallest of his family, to go up against a huge giant with just a sling and a stone. Because through all those battles, God is saying, rely on me and my strength because the battle is mine and I will defeat the enemy. Depend on my strength. You have a king. I am your king who fights for you and wins battles. And of course, as we look at all of redemptive history, what is the greatest demonstration of that? But in Jesus Christ himself, right? God's incarnate son comes down, our conquering king in the flesh. And Christ has already won that battle. That's what Paul said back in Ephesians 1 verse 22. Jesus put all things under his feet. A sign of victory. In chapter 4 verse 8 he says, Jesus led captivity captive. That's what you do after you've won a battle. And he proclaims it again in Colossians 2 verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities Put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, know this. Christianity is a victory that is won for you, not by you. And that's what Christ has demonstrated, and that is the good news. The good news of the gospel is that our righteous God made us to love him, to serve him forever, We rebelled against his rule, his law. We made ourselves enemies against him. We stood on the other side of the battlefield. We placed ourselves there in opposition to him. And we might fight against him for now, but we can't hold out forever because one day God's patience will run out against sinners. He will come and judgment will begin. And then everyone will have to give account to him. And the only thing standing between us and hell is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man and lived a sinless life that we could not. He lived perfectly trusting in God, his Father. He died the death that we deserve in our place for our sins on the cross, and so he bore God's condemnation against the sin of all his people. He suffered the death sentence that we deserve at God's command, but God raised him up from the dead to prove that Jesus didn't die for his own sin, but he died for our sins, and to prove that he defeated the greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And God accepted Jesus back to heaven's throne at God's the Father's right hand, demonstrating that he is a divine warrior. And the Bible promises that he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. He will 
wrap up his victory, so to speak. And so even though you face trials in this life right now as a Christian, those are mopping up operations, as it were. Friends, the Bible tells us that when Christ comes again, he will finalize this victory. So based on that provision of mercy and promise of hope, God commands everyone to confess our sins to him, to repent of our rebellion, to admit we've been enemies, and instead trust in Christ and find reconciliation with God and a new life in Jesus Christ. For those of us who do repent and trust in Christ, the victory is won for you, not by you, believer. It's handed to you. Friends, that's good news. The Bible promises us even more good news, and I'm going to close with this. When you're tempted in the Christian life, when you are facing these spiritual attacks, when you're up against doubt, when you're up against doubts, worry, anxiety, accusations, remember these words from Paul in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that's good news. So Christian, know you have a real enemy. Know what his tactics and weapons are. Train in the armor that weapons God has given to you. Ask other Christians for help and rely on God's strength and might because he is a king. He is a king who fights for you. To withstand the, devil, to withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in his armor. Amen. Let's ask his help to do that. Please pray with me.